So welcome, welcome to Mindspace. This is Jeff Boucher and I'm here with Maya St. Clair and Michael Giltz. How are you both doing? Thank you for having me. It's always great to be here. I'm sorry I didn't have you on my show this week, uh, but we're not having an episode because my co-host Sperling is in con and every week we talk about obituaries where we try to celebrate the things, the people that have died and the great work that they've done that we love. It's not a sad time too much unless somebody's really young or something, obviously, or died tragically. It's a time yeah. where I used to feel ghoulish. I would read a review of an author or a musician in the Times and go, wow, that sounds really great. And I'd run out to buy their album or book and be astonished that there were still copies on the shelf. I thought everyone would run to the store, you know, this great person, how this sounds so exciting. And I'd want to see that movie, read that book, listen to that music. And I thought I went, oh, that's tech. No, it's the best possible way to celebrate somebody's life. Yeah, it really is. And, and um, it's, that's very well said. And I, I know I had a kind of a same uh, kind of conflicted reaction to, to my, um, my fondness for writing obituaries. I love writing obituaries because I think it's the, the challenge of writing quickly, uh, but encompassing an entire life and context. And, that's, and I, I think context and making connections is one of the things that I've had the best luck with. Um, so through the years, I wrote a lot of obituaries like uh, James Brown and, and uh, you know George Harrison and Whitney Houston for the LA Times. Um, but I'm really glad I wasn't working there yesterday uh, as we record this because Richard Donner died. And that one would have been really tough for me because I got very close to Richard Donner, um, I would say, as, as, uh, as close as a reporter and source get without, you know, uh, kind of becoming too friendly. Um, he just uh, was just a great kind of role. Uh, he played a great role in my career. He did a lot of really cool things for me. He showed up at live events to be interviewed by me on stage for no reason other than me asking, mm. um, which is really great. And uh, there was also, um, he he appeared at this film festival I did. Um, I put together for the, the, the Hero Complex, um, you know, you know, a few years back, and um, I, I have a very fond memory of uh, there was a, a uh, my son was sitting in the front row and he was wearing a Superman the movie shirt, and my son was eight years old at the time, and um, it was my shirt. It was from nineteen seventy eight. Um, I when I was eight, uh, so mm -hmm. he was the same age I was when I got the shirt. Oh, it didn't wow. fit me because it was a gift, so it had been in a drawer for, <laughs> since nineteen seventy eight, and my family home in Florida and I got it and gave it to Ben to wear to this film festival to see the Christopher Reeve movie on the big screen uh, and 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 then here's dad interview uh, Richard Donner on stage uh, and Donner saw the you now Donner's the big man with a really big voice deep baritone and you could just hear him across like uh, the Sahara Desert really uh, and uh, he sees the shirt and he goes you there, come up. And he pulls Ben up out of the audience and my son uh, doing, you know, just uh, just a great job of being very calm and, and kind of going with it. He stands up and turns around and faces the crowd. I think it was like 300 people there. And um, Donner says, where did you get this thing? That's vintage, that's amazing. He's like, my dad gave it to me. Well, who's your dad? <laughs> he is, <laughs> he is, and he points to me. And Donner's like, I've been set up. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> but it was really very, very charming. Uh, and it was like such a, a lovely uh, uh, day. One of the odd things is there was, uh, we had a, a lifelike statue 
of Christopher Reeve that a fan had done. And I mean, this thing was, it's, it's really extraordinary. I'll put links, uh, you know, when we post this, but uh, it, it was exceptional and kind of unsettling because it, it was more realistic than, you know, the, the most realistic wax figures I had ever seen. And, and Donner had a real problem with it. Like he like did not want to go toward the lobby. And, and, um, <laughs> and every time he talked about Chris Reeve, and you can imagine we, he talked about Chris Reeve a lot, uh, especially when people like me were around asking questions about Superman and, and Superman 2. Um, and uh, he, he, almost, he almost always teared up. You know, uh, it was obvious that he really, really loved Chris. And he told great stories about Christopher Reeve. Um, one of my favorite ones being when Reeve was uh, late to the set and then showed up flying uh, what amounted to be a crop duster. He landed on uh, a crop duster on the, the road. They're out in the countryside. And he gets out. And then, of course, there's a, a beautiful woman with him. And uh, they had been <laughs> on a picnic. And, he, and uh, Donner's like, I just wanted to kick his ass and hug him at the same time. That was just, he just was so <laughs> impressed with uh, the way that Chris Reeve lived his life. And um, so, but yeah, so uh, Richard Donner, what a, what a great uh, a career, age 91. And I mean, Michael, you think about the movies. I mean, I mean, Superman springs to mind, the Lethal Weapon franchise springs to mind, but, and The Omen, I think people forget how big a deal The Omen, Omen was in the 70s. You know, I mean, uh, it was a big part of that genre push. Absolutely. That's what, you know, made his bones as a film director. He died at the age of 91. He had a long career as a uh, as a director in television, sort of a gun for hire. That's where he got his start. And he spent, you know, 20 years in the trenches making uh, TV episodes for all sorts of television. He had a sort of a classic career apprenticeship. He was actually trying to become an actor. Uh, he was a kid, a nice Jewish boy from New York. His dad owned a furniture manufacturing business, but he wanted to be a star. And he <laughs> and he somehow got a bit role on a mark on an episode of a TV show that Martin Ritt was directing. And Martin wow. Ritt said, you know, as an actor, you'd make a pretty good director. And he, and he convinced <laughs> him to become an, an AD for him. And he started working for him right away. And then he started getting TV shows and doing episodes. And it was the classic apprenticeship working your way through all sorts of good shows uh, at the time. The Rifleman, Have Gun, Will Travel, The Man from Uncle, Combat, Gilligan's Island, which is interesting. The Wild Wild West, a good combination of comedy and action. Kojak, uh, and two classic episodes of The Twilight Zone. Yeah, well, I knew uh, Terror, it's, uh, is it 10,000 feet? 20,000 feet. 20,000 It's a lot of terror, very high up terror. You know what? I thought it was 20,000 leagues. I wasn't sure if I was <laughs> inflating. So uh, uh, what was the second one he did? I, I well, he did about six episodes of The Twilight Zone, but the two people oh. mentioned the most are the William Shatner episode where he's on a yeah. plane and sees something out on a wing. And then there's From Agnes with Love, which oh. stars Wally Cox, Mr. Peepers, as a computer programmer whose computer program falls in love with him and tries to sabotage his romantic relationship, much like you might think of Her, the film with Joaquin Phoenix, or Electric Dreams from the early 80s, a minor romantic comedy where the computer program played a big role. But those were two, uh, two episodes that stand up. And again, one is very serious and one has a lot of humor. And I think that's something that he really brought to Superman and definitely, of course, Lethal Weapon. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and um, uh, Maverick as well, uh, you know, kind of uh, dipping into, and which was, of course, a nod back to, to his television years. Um, he got to start doing 
uh, episode of Wanted Dead or Alive, I think, right? The, uh, um, he had he had Zane Grey Theater as his first official Zane credit, Gray. at least on IMDb. And then yeah. he got a job on on with uh, Steve McQueen and Steve McQueen didn't like him, he says. Steve McQueen didn't want him on the show. And he said, look, I'll, I'll just quit. You know, you don't seem to be happy with me. And McQueen said, no, 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 nobody quits my show. And then he took him in and he worked with him and they developed a rapport and he ended up making about six or seven episodes of that show. And then it was off to the races. But like you said, it was a lot of journeyman work. And I think one breakthrough was the TV movie, Sarah T, Portrait of an Alcoholic with actress Linda Blair. There's a horror film connection for you. He made wow. this TV movie, which got good uh, ratings in 1975. I'm not sure how much the critics liked it, but it was important for Linda Blair. And it was important for him because that sort of put him in position to do The Omen, which nobody really wanted, did they? It was one of yeah. the many attempts to make a horror flick in the wake of The Exorcist. Yeah, well, and I think the movie, uh, the original title on the script was The Antichrist. And I think that that was probably a real deal breaker for a lot of people. <laughs> And it was apparently a little goofy. There were all that cloven hoofs and all these goofy things. And he really cut through the script and made it a lot more serious. And he got Gregory Peck, which added a lot of gravitas to the movie. But it was a low budget horror flick made in the wake of The Exorcist, but it made a ton of money. Absolutely. Um, it's interesting, too. I know that he directed some episodes of The Banana Splits, uh, and uh, which <laughs> which makes puts me to the mind of uh, nobody smoked more marijuana than Richard Donner. Uh, man. Really? Oh my gosh. Willie yes. Nelson? Uh, well, I mean, he's right up there. He's it's a tie. Dirty. He's like the Bob Marley of- Really? Um, oh yeah, sure. Oh, like yeah. Robert Altman would get his pot from Richard Donner? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, the um, he told me that when he got the, uh, the job for Superman, he um, started smoking quite a lot and then put on a red cape and went out and started pretending to fly around his driveway because he was so excited. He was zooming around the yard, just uh, kind of pretending to be Superman as, you know, apparently alarming neighbors and, and, uh, and you know, uh, just anybody who passes by. Well, he's, he's done a lot of other movies uh, beyond Superman, but that obviously looms large. I don't know the story. Do you know why? He made The Omen, 1975, huge hit launched four sequels. I don't think he had anything to do with any of them, but made a lot of money and positioned him perfectly for Superman the movie when that opportunity came up. But why didn't they use Richard Lester? You know, why did they go with this guy who had not done anything remotely at that level? Well, because the producers of, of Super, I mean, the Salkins are just... Penny pinchers. Richard Lester probably had too much... And uh, also just, they, I think that the not necessarily the strongest North star as far as creative compass. I think like, you know, uh, uh, if you look at like the, 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 although I don't know how much it was for publicity, but like the casting for Superman, like, you, you know, Bruce Jenner and uh, uh, their first choice was Robert Redford. I'm like, what? 1970 Robert Redford. Why is that Superman? You know? Uh, Cause he's so charming, you know, if yeah. they could have gotten him, I guess I can understand the appeal. He'd have a wink and a smile, but. You know, Richard Donner, right? He's the one who insisted, no, 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 we have to go with an unknown. Exactly. And I think that he, Donner again and again and again had the, 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 uh, the right choices. Uh, it's almost like they, it, it was a mistake that they got a director as good as Donner with as much ambition and, and, um, uh, and you know, uh, as much kind of uh, integrity. Uh, really, they should have gotten somebody that 
wasn't that good because the everything else, I mean, I, I mean, it seems to me like almost like Donner single-handedly got that project uh, where it landed. And of course that's, that's, uh, you know, that's probably completely unfair, but I mean, the, the great special effects work was, and the great cast, the ensemble, they, they did end up with a tremendous cast. And, you know, years later, Chris Nolan, who visited the set of Superman as a youngster, it was his first experience, you know, really uh, with movie making. Um, and it was a very formative experience for him. He, he talks about uh, touching the, uh, the, the Fortress of Solitude, the, the icy, uh, you know, mm -hmm. sawdust paint. sawdust. Yeah, exactly. He talks about being on the set and seeing that things didn't have weight and that, that even if it looked good on the screen, it, it was flimsy. Um, and sort of, sort of began his, uh, you know, ongoing uh, life uh, vocation of uh, putting you know, illusion on a, a, a big screen. Um, and he, uh, Nolan often pointed to the Superman movie, the first Superman movie too, as uh, influence on the choice to uh, cast the actors that were cast for Batman Begins. I mean, he, he said the reason you have Rucker Hauer in Batman Begins in, in role number 12, you know, um, the reason you have Tom Berenger in Inception is he wanted to cast the way Donner cast, where like, you know, you're watching Superman, you're half an hour into the movie and then people are, you're, I mean, you know, Jackie Cooper show, showing up and you're like, what? You know, like there's, there's just so many, you know, Glenn Ford and uh, just so many amazing uh, cameos. And full uh, credit to casting director Lynn Stallmaster, who was the one who found Christopher Reeve and said, this is the guy and kept pushing him repeatedly. Yeah. Well, and you got to remember too that Superman, it wasn't necessarily, no, a lot of people didn't think it was going to work. You know, like there was a lot of directors who would probably steer clear of it. There, there had never been a super superhero movie other than, I mean, you had the 1966 Batman film, but that was really an extension of the TV show and it was camp. Mm -hmm. uh, you had Superman movie in the 50s, Superman versus Adam Man, uh, which actually had Lex Luthor as uh, his first appearance quietly uh, also in that movie. But uh, there had never been a blockbuster movie. There had never been a, a major feature film and most people didn't think it would work. Uh, there had never been one that didn't look ridiculous. Certainly, one that didn't look, never one that didn't look ridiculous, and uh, that was considered to be like a major studio, you know, uh, project. And and this was the most expensive film Warner Brothers had ever produced when it was released. It was uh, it cost the most to make, and and by the time it finished its run, it would be the highest grossing Warner Brothers film released up to that point in history. Um, and it's coming in the wake of King Kong from 1976. That's right. Yeah, which yeah. which was a commercial success to a degree but not a movie that people were proud of. No, no, except Charles Gordon. <laughs> He's good at it. Um, but, it, uh, is, it is the greatest comic book movie of all time. It certainly set the standard for all the movies that follow. And, absolutely. you know, if you believe the auteur theory, Richard Donner's a big reason why, isn't he? Absolutely. You know, and uh, his, his approach to it was, uh, was uh, a dynamic one, and, and it, it does continue to echo... Um, all these years later, really, and and now, I mean, basically, he planted a flag uh, with that movie, and now it's that's the dominant genre um, of you know mainstream box office commercial hits is the superhero film, and he sort of created the template for that. It's funny because some people criticize the movie even today as well. There's too much light comedy and stuff, um, and it does have a, a a light touch with the romance. They have great chemistry, Margot Kidder and Christopher Reeve, and there is romance and there is humor in the movie, but 
if you watch the film, it's really David Lean. It is a biblical epic. It is the story of Jesus. You know, it is told with all the stately air of a film like that from the 50s. And it takes its own sweet time getting there, baby. I mean, he doesn't fly for you know an hour or something, 45 minutes into the movie. You can probably clock it, but it's it's epic and it's quiet and it's thoughtful and it has a majestic air that's so befitting this, you know, iconic cultural tale. Absolutely. And you're right, it does. It's almost like the Ben, it's got like a Ben-Hur sort of stateliness uh, to to it, and which almost kind of is the, everybody knows the guy's going to show up, you know, uh, in the Bible movie. Everybody knows the guy's going to show up, whether it's Moses or Jesus, <laughs> but you know, the guy's coming uh, and uh, the guy with the cape's coming. So everything is is an overture leading up to that moment. And, uh, and, and no one was more prepared to meet a moment on screen ever than Christopher Reeve was in Superman because the, it, it was a transcendent and trans, uh, you know, uh, just you know, just a brilliant, lit from within, amazing performance. Like Harrison Ford in Raiders of the Lost Ark, those performances really get ignored. I mean, I, they're appreciated, but not really to the level that they should be. That's right. That's right. And I think Reeves had a far tougher assignment with that cape. You know, they, you know, it's you know indiana jones at least he's got a hat you know like but <laughs> two men's wearing his underwear on the outside come on but nothing happens in a vacuum where they're com obviously there were comic we hadn't gotten yet to uh the the really iconic comic book runs that established batman in this, such a heavy noirish dark way were there i assume there were heavy serious comic books at the time that were setting up the idea that this should be taken seriously um well, not written. Well, yeah, yeah. You what you would have in the Superman sort of realm, DC Comics mainstream. Um, uh, you, you would have social kind of relevance. You know, like you know, oh, every once in a while, like there was a there's a uh, the same year Superman came out. I was published. I think is the greatest single issue comic book ever, which was Superman versus Muhammad Ali. Uh, really, <laughs> it's, it's the greatest comic book ever written uh, and drawn by Neil Adams, and it's it's oversized. It's like this. Uh, it's a half <laughs> size of a newspaper folded in half. Uh -huh. uh, or it sounds like a, it sounds like the Harlem Globetrotters on Gilligan's Island. It sounds like a train wreck. Uh, it sounds like it, and it's not. It, it actually turns into this this a very serious socio like informed, uh, but still, uh, it's like Rocky meets uh um what's going on by marvin gay oh and wow with with star wars what? <laughs> and well, muhammad ali and superman <laughs> and i think there's another thing that sets up the movie that he could build on everybody sees the movie and says look they they wiped away the campiness of batman that television series from the 60s they totally you know ignored that and made it serious and important there's also uh, the building out of what was going on on cbs in prime time because they had a number of superhero shows. Oh, and yeah. while Wonder Woman was uh, fun, uh, right. but it wasn't campy like Batman. And you had the adventures of the, the amazing Spider-Man TV movie that aired in 1977 that yeah. was a little more kid-oriented. But again, it was taken a little seriously. But most of all, you had the Incredible Hulk with Bill Bixby, in which there was a Shakespearean level of seriousness to the show. This guy had a burden. And he was... He was alone walking down the highway at the end of every episode, this man having to deal with this, you know, curse that he had. And this was a very serious. And I remember watching that as a kid and being absolutely absorbed by it. He turned into a big green monster at the end of every episode. But most of it was really a, a, a well done, quiet drama. 
Absolutely, and the and the theme song. Don't forget how evocative the theme song and award winning and 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 had a big part of kind of uh, uh, signaling the, the intention of the show to to be as you say. I mean, I always thought it was like um, instead of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, it was like Doctor Kimball and Mister Hyde because I mean he's Richard Kimball on the run. Yes. It's the fugitive turns into the the Hulk, um, and uh, you know. It was limited by the the effects and such, but uh, you know sometimes he'd hit a wall and the wall would leave a green mark. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know it is what it is. But it 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 definitely is in the the air. Uh, you know, Wonder Woman didn't have the campiness that's uh, that Batman had certainly, but it, it had a um, sort of hyper, uh, you know, uh, super saturated uh, kind of simplicity, and it had the romance. It had that, right. that that erotic romance between, you know, uh, Steve Rogers. Is that, no, is that his name? Steve Trevor. Steve Trevor, thank you. And and Wonder Woman slash her secretary in disguise. And, you and you know, you combine that with the Incredible Hulk and you have Superman. You've got the That's great right. romance and you've got the really serious stuff that he's, that he's grappling with. His responsibility, what do I do with this great power? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we all know what that comes with. Yeah, exactly. Uh, a cape. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is not easy to deal with. And, and so everybody that's listening to this podcast knows the story, probably that he was supposed to do Superman too. They filmed a lot of it at the same time, the same way that the Salkins did the three Musketeers, which is a great movie and yeah. the four Musketeers, which is a really good movie too. They were, you know, they weren't doubling down. We got everybody together. Let's film enough material for two movies and save some bucks. And of course, uh, Richard Donner had, a lot of contratops with them and lost the project. It's been talked about for many years. We finally have a restored cut to a degree. It's not the level of Zack Snyder's uh, movie, but it is a restored cut. You can get an idea of what he was doing. Have you seen it? And what do you think of it? Uh, the Donner cut? Yeah. is fantastic uh, as an artifact. You know, it's uh, when that came out, um, I wrote quite a lot about it. Uh, and, um, and, 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 did a, uh, an event where I interviewed him on stage after a screening of it over at the Directors Guild. And uh, it's you can't watch it at, as just a casual movie fan because it's a found thing. I mean, it's a composite of uh, footage that was used, footage that wasn't used. Test some screenings, that, you know, yeah, you name stuff. Uh, and there's even audition stuff in there. And actually the, the single, the most uh, uh, kind of... Uh, the, the artifact within this artifact that's the most uh, valuable, I think, is there's there's a great scene where um, Christopher Reeve and um, um, Margot Kidder are doing an audition uh, for Clark, as Clark and Lois, and uh, it's very very sly and it's got a, a little bit more of a um, kind of a His Girl Friday feel, mm -hmm. screwball um, comedy. Yeah, and he's even wearing old-fashioned glasses in it, so he looks more like uh, he looks like Atticus Finch, but young. Um, and uh, that that scene and, and the images from it uh, were just so endearing. Uh, that that that's the thing I remember most. But I mean, you get a sense of what the shape of it would have been. It's kind of like a, a, a cardboard cutout of what the movie could have been. So you have to be really a deep dig kind of person to kind of seek it out but if you do seek it out and if you do love the first uh, superman film and if you do love the superman 2 uh that reached the screen uh it def definitely has some value to it but it's not going to be something that like uh casual fans are going to be able to, to 
I used to wrongly say that Empire Strikes Back was the best of the trilogy, and I used to say that Superman 2 was better than Superman 1. Uh, but I, dark side. I have long since revised my opinion that, in fact, Superman the movie is is the best, and as well as Star Wars, that they have, yeah. that they do so much and accomplish so much. But he had Superman in 1978. He didn't get Superman 2, even though he shot a lot of it. He had two movies that didn't do terribly well, Inside Moves and The Toy. But He's then he... He had a great you, you 1985. Think, oh, I'm so sorry. You would think he would have done the Twilight Zone movie, you know, because they because ah. that came out right around then, 1980, I think. Yeah. And, and they remade his episode. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> George Miller directed directed the 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 the, the revisitation of it. Um, Did Spielberg do one of them? Or no, he wasn't involved in that. No, I think he produced it. Because the Salkins wanted Spielberg, or at least Ilya Salkin wanted Spielberg, right? But uh, the husband was like, I don't know. Let's see how Jaws does. We're not sure about this kid. Oops. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> exactly. But, but he had two movies that didn't do very well, but then he had a great 1985. I know there's w- two movies that came out, one that we both love and one that, that uh, you know, did very well. One is Lady Hawk and the uh, other is The Goonies. Yeah. Now everybody's going to, most people would say that, or a lot of people would say they love the Goonies and what's Lady Hawk. Uh, I fall into the exact opposite category. I didn't see Goonies until I had children. I, uh, I was in my, uh, you know, thirties and uh, I was, I found it. No, there's no charm there for me. I, I just don't get it because I didn't see it as a kid. So I think people are going to have to give me a pass on that one. Um but you mentioned Lady Hawk, and I adore that film. I think that movie's great. And I know a very funny story about it that Kurt Russell told me. Oh, well, Kurt um, Russell, who got who quit the movie. I'd love to hear that story. So this is a 1985 medieval sort of fantasy film. It's a light romantic a film with some dark undertones. It stars Rutger Hauer as a knight, Michelle Pfeiffer. They're on the run. And Matthew Broderick was cast as a fast-talking sort of peasant who uh, has a running commentary with God and doesn't like being in all this mess. He just wants to get away and stay safe. And it's yeah, a, it's a very good movie. I must say. Yeah. He's like Ferris Bueller. No, yes. uh, essentially. No, it's it, a little um, anachronistic, but what happened with Kurt Russell? It is anachronistic. And the music, do you remember? It was, oh, it's, it's, you know, very, very famously, the music is sort of, is sort of modern. You know, they didn't say, Oh, we have to have the classic film score. They went with a modern vibe to the music, more Alan Parsons project than, you know, Jerry Goldsmith. And it works. Yeah, more Alan Parsons than Alan Parker. Uh, <laughs> but it, um, and it's like a Knight's Tale would later do almost the same thing, but with a different uh, different tone. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the story Kurt Russell told is uh, he was on the set. He, I asked him once, I said, you know, did you ever get asked to play superheroes? He's like, yeah, all the time. I, I never want to play that superhero shit, man. I don't wear tights, you know? Like, and you gotta remember, Kurt Russell was a baseball player and he, he doesn't find a lot of... He, he wanted to be a baseball player he, and until he got injured, then he like, had to settle for acting. He had to go back to <laughs> his, his uh, childhood career. Um, and uh, he was suspicious of, of capes and tights and that extended to medieval tights. And he, he found himself there on the set and he's like, he puts on the costume. I mean, they're, they're on the set. There's scripts. There's and he's, he's cast as Rutger Hauer. He's the knight. Yeah, and there's craft services and people. He is the lead. He's the lead in a movie. The guy, the guy, and uh, he comes out to Donner. He's like, ah, I don't know about this. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, what, what are you talking? You look great. You look great. Come on. Um, he's like, that's crazy. He quit because of the costume. Yeah, he goes. I don't think I can pull this off, man. Uh, no, no, you're going to be great. He goes, and 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 Kurt Russell says, Hey, have you seen Blade Runner? To to Dick Donner. 
Richard Donner says, oh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Why, why? Well, have you, I mean, that's the guy you should get. That guy, you know, that guy, the blonde guy, that, that guy could wear tights. <laughs> what, what guy? Oh, what's his name? Rucker Howard. Rucker Howard? I'm, I mean, I hear good things about this guy. I think that's the guy you want. That's it. Maybe, maybe we'll let, okay. Oh, hold on, Kurt. And then they go and they call Rucker Howard and Rucker Howard says, yes. And I said to Kurt Russell, like, wait, what? Like, so you just talked to your, you, you were his agent. You got him this job for no reason. That's and he's crazy. like, yeah. And I said, well, what'd you do? He said, well, to celebrate, uh, you know, I flew to New York and I, and I met Goldie Hawn at a hotel. I said, and yeah, made and that went really, really well. <laughs> and that was the whole story. <laughs> were they, they were already married at that point. I'm not sure. Oh, okay. I'm not sure. <laughs> now, you know, he, he was working steadily there. Uh, you know, he had a couple movies in the mid eighties. So uh, the fact that he was available is kind of surprising, you know, well, he did Eureka, the Osterman weekend, a breed apart flesh and blood and then a movie i like called the hitcher so you know he it wasn't like he was sitting around but no. yeah and it's one of his best roles by far i absolutely. think and certainly as a leading man it really shows he could do it absolutely absolutely it, it's got the most uh some of the most nuance of any of his uh uh roles in that era like so a lot of them um didn't give the emotional range that one had i think yeah so and, richard donner went on to be a producer he went on to work with his wife, Lauren Schuler Donner. They've overseen the X-Men franchise and another franchise. Which one is it? I've forgotten. My mind is blanking. The, uh, the, he did another franchise as well. But his legacy is, is, is certainly assured because of the movie he made in 1987, which is Lethal Weapon, the perfect yeah. combination of the, the, the light comedy, but taking it all seriously and caring about characters in the midst of an action film smash-up. Yeah, absolutely. It became a template for the Onesa movies. One's a veteran cop on the verge of retirement. <laughs> One's a, a crazy vet, Vietnam vet let loose on the streets of LA. What will happen next? <laughs> well, uh, it wasn't a it wasn't the first, you know, buddy comedy where the, you know, the the messy guy and the neat guy, but it certainly brought it into a new era and a new genre. You didn't see it so much before, did you? Yeah, that's right. With that great script by Shane Black, which he famously wrote. Uh, in a whirlwind in, in, on the typewriter in his car. Uh, uh, you know, I think in a couple of weeks, he said he wrote the whole thing um, and caught magic in the bottle. And, and for Dick Donner, you know, Lethal Weapon would become a, a sub-career. I mean, he, he directed every installment of the franchise um, and he became very, very close friends with Mel Gibson and with Danny Glover. And um, they all, uh, the three of them adore each other. And, and, you can count Jodie Foster in, in, in the group as well. Um, and I've talked to each of them about each other and they, their allegiance is deep and, and, uh, and, and meaningful. And it's actually really pretty great to, to see them all work together when they, they've done it. It's usually gone pretty well. And while Mel, Mel Gibson was making some, you know, certainly some acclaimed films, one of my favorite films of all time, Gallipoli, and he was yeah. doing Road Warrior, but... And he was doing some serious films, The Year of Living Dangerously, The Bounty. These are all noble films, The River, yeah. Mrs. Sofo. They're not bringing in the bucks. And it doesn't position Mel Gibson as a Hollywood movie star. And then suddenly with Lethal Weapon, he's suicidal, he's upset, he's dangerous, he's charismatic, he's funny. And that really sets him off forever as a Hollywood star. And his butt. <laughs> well, I, I was trying to be polite. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, the uh, People magazine, Sexiest Man Alive, and he be, it became he became Mel Gibson that we know or knew then. Uh, you know, thanks in large part to Lethal Weapon and, and the catapult it provided. 
Um, what did Richard Donna bring to it? What did he, what did he do? We, we've talked a little bit about that, but what did he see in that franchise? What did he make happen? What is, what's the magic that he did? Well, I think, you know what, I think it goes back to what you were talking about with his, his craft. I think that all the years doing television and knowing what works, knowing what makes a joke work, timing, what, you know, after so many episodes of uh, sitcoms and, and dramas, I think it, he just had a, a really strong assurance. He knew what things, what he wanted and, and knew how to get things done. And I think that uh, the professionalism is why later he would be brought in sometimes to help out. Like, you know, a lot of people say X-Men Origins, uh, you know, uh, you know, with a young director, it wasn't going well and that he came in uh, quietly and kind of, finish that up in some ways, uh, depending on who you ask about how much he would do. But um, I think the steady hand and the, and, and the, uh, the, the sharpened sensibilities. And um, he was a funny guy and he was a, he's a raconteur, you know. Um, very few people could tell a story the way he told a story. And I think that uh, that and his enthusiasm, his, his sense of wonder, uh, the guy um, was always, really really engaged and curious about things and uh you know i would whenever i would talk to him he would ask me as many questions as i would ask him he wanted to know what other people were up to and what i thought about things and what i was hearing i found a funny story he told me um um uh about this giant superman uh like mural sized superman that he had in his backyard uh so uh, many years ago, when Superman came out, there was a half-body cutout on the side of the soundstage up here on the Warner lot in Burbank. This is him talking. And it had the logo and everything. Years later, I was over in either the sign shop or the prop shop, and I looked up, and I saw it there. So I said to the guy there, hey, can I have that? He says, no, 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 no. That belongs to the studio. So two years later go by. Michael Riva, the production designer, was doing something, and I knew he was over in the prop shop, and I told him, Mike, steal it. Just steal it. <laughs> You're a designer. No one's going to ask you. No one ever stops. You just take it. So he took it. He took it down. He <laughs> delivered it to my house and he put it up on the side of a hill next to my house. And it looks like Chris Reeve is coming out of the hill above my house. Shortly thereafter, Bob Daly, who was chairman of Warner, he came over for dinner to my house and we walked outside and he saw it and he said, where the hell did you get that? And I said, oh, you gave it to me. Don't you remember? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> and so then I was good. But the point is, I think of Chris all the time. This thing is right next to my pool. And I get in the pool a lot and I look up there and I see him and I think about him. I think about him a lot. There's nobody that could have played that role the way he played it. I don't think anybody will ever come along and play it like he played it. Others will play it different. They'll play it fine. But on top of that, he was a really special individual, a great kid, a great person, loving, devoted, great sense of humor, the personification of a good friend. And he made my career. I think about him an awful lot. That is very sweet. That is, and and to wind up, uh, please offer your defense of Scrooge. <laughs> yeah, well, I offer Scrooge as a uh, uh, Michael knows that I have a soft spot for that movie. I can't argue that it's empirically a great film, but it does have, I think, the most audaciously weird cast assembled for one movie. I don't know that there's ever been a stranger cast. Mary Lou Retton. Mary Lou Retton, of course, is the first one that springs to uh, mind. Lee Majors. Uh, Miles Davis. Oh, Miles Davis. I didn't know that. Gilbert Gottfried, uh, John Forsyth, Bill Murray, um, Carol King. I'm not looking at it. I'm just doing this off of memory. Uh, you are indeed. 
there are uh there's like uh i think dave sanborn is in that movie of, the, the, of, the saxophonist i believe so karen allen john glover david johansson robert mitchum is in it yeah. Al alfrey woodard robert goulet of course buddy hackett jamie farr john houseman <laughs> <laughs> it's like mad libs yes it's like the nuttiest cast of all if time. If only Miles Kevin Davis. Bacon was in there. If only Kevin Bacon was in there. There was another uh, jazz musician. I'm not sure if it was Sam Boring. Maybe it was. It was somebody that was in the scene with um, with uh, Miles Davis. Mm -hmm. um, but I think Scrooge is a lot of fun. Um, and uh, you know, I just it's it's loopy and it's big and gregarious and it's got a big heart and that just that's that's uh, that's what I think of when I think of Dick Donner and and Dick Donner's uh, had some really interesting. Uh, not only did he create the template for the superhero film, but two of his assistants have gone on to do pretty extraordinary things. Um, one was Jeff Johns, uh, who would become, you know, uh, um, you know, the the king of DC Comics as far as uh, writers over the last three decades. I mean, he was mm -hmm. the most influential writer, um, and uh, uh, had a large role in Warner Brothers push. Uh, to bring DC Comics to the West Coast and and to, to incorporate them into um, the films and the, the TV shows, and you see his influence, you know, throughout. He was working for uh, uh, Donner. Um, he called to get uh, he called to find out about an internship, and Donner answered the phone, <laughs> and he's like, "What?" And he's like, "I'm calling. I'm, is there, do you guys have internships?" And he's like, oh, "Hold on." He puts them on the hold. And he's like, "Do we have?" Do we have interns? <laughs> no, no. Well, we should. Uh, we, we don't have an intern, but uh, what's your name? And and that led to basically Jeff John's career in Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> I knew I should have gone to the set of Lord of the Rings. I knew it. <laughs> and uh, uh, they would later uh, work together. And, uh, you know, before Jeff really had any profile in Hollywood, um, uh, Dick Donner uh, was telling me that he should be directing the next Superman movie. Uh, and which I wrote about back, back, way back. Uh, and um, the other person is, you know, uh, Kevin Feige got his start as uh, working for Lauren and for Dick, um, you know, uh, on the X-Men franchise. And, you know, Kevin's, uh, you know, great success at Marvel is knowing what to leave in and what to leave out from the comics. And he's, he's, he's you know, done a masterful job of it. Like, you know, they get rid of Thor's secret identity. He's had a secret identity for 40 years. You're not in the movies. No one even blinked. No one even noticed. Um, uh, that's because of Kevin's, you know, uh, focus and, and sort of understanding of the, the integrity of stuff. But both those guys got their start in the Donner camp uh, with uh, Lauren Schuler Donner and, and with Dick Donner. And uh, um, just an awful lot of fun to kind of reflect on uh, how many really cool people uh, have come out of there and they do a lot of TV stuff as well. You know, in recent years, um, conspiracy theory was another hit that, uh, that uh, brought Mel Gibson together with, uh, with Donner and then uh, Maverick, which we talked a little bit about as well. Well, you know, uh, they also oversaw the Deadpool franchise, which leans heavily on the humor, but takes the humor seriously it says, no, 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 we can't do a PG 13 humor. It has to be an R. And that that's was a right. very gutsy ballsy move for them to do. And that's why it worked. That's, you know, knowing again, what's going to work for that character, that comic book. So it's your, your love for him comes through. Uh, I need to go watch uh, Superman two, the director's cut. 
and I'd like to revisit Lady Hawk. It's been a few years, and maybe I'll come holiday, I'll give Scrooge another chance. Just, just give it just one chance. <laughs> if you believe, if you believe, it'll be a good movie. But uh, it's, um, yeah, it's it's uh, a, a well a well lived life, uh, a long life, and and uh, and a, a man that's larger than life in a lot of ways. Um, and it's just such a treat to uh, have gotten to know him. It's, it's one of the things that's bothered me actually for years and years and years is, is the way that the, the people that cover show business, the way that people cover Hollywood just embrace uh, the numbers that are given out by the studios uh, for the top movies, the box office champs. And it's you know, a list that we, it became popular to cover it uh, during the Entertainment Tonight era, uh, you know, when uh, uh, entertainment journalism expanded and, and uh, the news cycle changed for the first time and, would later change again, but uh, we we started getting more scrutiny of the way the industry actually works, and we became uh, accustomed as an audience to getting the top five or the top ten box office uh, performers of the week, and then maybe for the year, and then of course that conversation would naturally extend to the all-time list. And uh, so it's common you could ask most teenagers, "Hey, what's the highest-grossing film of all time?" And a good surprising number of them would say, well, it's Avengers, Avengers Endgame, you know, like, because they know that that's the biggest movie uh, in box office terms. According well, it's, to it's actually Avatar now because Avatar was re-released in China. So that passed it up again. So the top gross movie is Avatar. Number two is Avengers Endgame. That's part of the worldwide box office. Well, an even smaller number of teenagers will have the accurate answer and say that it's Avatar, as I was <laughs> going to say. No, I'm just joking. Thank you. You're right. That is right. The 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 uh, ongoing derby uh, continues and the jockeying for position. I forgot uh, for a moment, but uh, it's this very thing that um, uh, the the fact that there's a horse race is kind of interesting between Avatar and Endgame for this position, and uh, it's a horse race that's covered, uh, you know, by the entertainment journalism community and bloggers and and the extended um, internet community that's in that conversation. Uh, but is it the right conversation? Is it is it is that conversation start off with a basis of shaky uh, foundation of logic? And and I think that in a way it does because I don't think that the way that we talk about the highest grossing films of all time is actually the best way because it isn't adjusted for inflation. And Michael Giltz, as I said, is our guest today. And um, Michael, like, do you agree with me or do you think I'm just wrong? Well, Jeff, thank you for having me on, on your podcast. I love it. I listen to it. I'm excited to be back on the show. And I am, you're absolutely right. It's a great conversation to have. I love that people report on box office. I love that they cover the week-to-week -week stuff. And people have really grown savvy over the years. And I think it's to the benefit to the industry to be accurate and complete, which is something we're missing right now. But as you said, in the 70s and the 80s, suddenly the top five movies of the week became a thing on Entertainment Tonight and USA Today. And people said, oh, that's the number one movie of the week. And that became a selling point. And then people got even more sophisticated. And they said, oh, now that movie fell hard in the second week. I mean, my mother would say that. You know, yeah. people learned this stuff that only people in the trade knew. People learned about per screen averages. They would learn that platoon to go way back opened on two screens, but scored $100,000 per screen, this crazy big amount of money on one screen. And they knew that was a lot of money. It wasn't the number one movie of the week because that movie was Porky's Five or whatever, because that was on 500 screen. And they learned all this stuff about wide releases and platforms and second weekends and movies that have legs like uh, my big fat Greek wedding. And I think that's great. 
because I'm a dork. And I was yeah. growing up and I read the billboard charts in the hot 100. And I looked at the book bestseller list and I looked at the movie grosses. So I love that people are informed. And now we need to inform them one step further about the top grossing movies of all time. When they say, I want to know what the biggest movies are of all time. And they go to a list like you will link to in your show notes, perhaps if you have any, the top sure. grossing movies of all time, they will get a really bad, distorted sense of history. But if they go to where you're going to send them, which is to the top grossing movies of all time, adjusted for inflation, they will get a much better sense of movie history. We have to get the marketing guys to work on that name, I think, because I don't think I don't know if the but, lifetime would just, I'm just the most popular movies of all time. That's what we want to send people to. If you just look at dollars, you're going to get confused. You're going to think that the biggest movies of all time are all Marvel and they all came out within the last week but it's not true. It's hard to compare movies to different eras. And one way they do it is to adjust for inflation. They say, okay, this movie made this much money in 1977. What if, what is that in today's dollars? And that's a pretty good rough estimate, but there's lots of reasons why that's not the best way. If we could, we would go back and force all the studios to report ticket sales. That would be the single best measure you could have to compare against errors. You still have the problem that there's twice as many people now as there were in the 19th or three times almost as yeah. there were in the 1930s when Gone with the Wind became the biggest movie of all time. And it still is. But ticket sales is the purest. You don't worry whether it's a kid ticket or a matinee ticket. Somebody showed up, they paid money and they saw the movie and ticket sales, which are tracked in Europe and tracked in other parts of the world. And that would make movies a lot more like album sales in the old days you sold an album that's an album sale you sell a million of them you go platinum you sell two million of them you've gone double platinum and that compares throughout the ages same thing with book sales you sell three hundred thousand copies of a book in hardcover you've sold three hundred thousand copies of a book but right. convert that into dollars and it gets really messy but yeah. we can't do that we don't have ticket sale prices i worked as a fact checker at premier magazine and i once worked on an article that a guy wrote he spent time figuring out how many tickets did Gone with the Wind sell? How many tickets did that movie sell? And it was released and re-released over the decades. It was again and again. He spent a year going through the archives of MGM. He went overseas to other countries to go into there because once a movie's overseas, figuring out how much money it made, they're like, ah, we sold four tickets. <laughs> then, yeah, sorry, this week was really bad. We sold seven, you know? Yeah. So that was a, a year-long effort, and it's still just an estimate. He still doesn't really know what it made. So you can never get ticket sales. You've got box office dollars, but the chart we're listening to is kind of interesting. I've never seen this. There's lots of charts showing adjusted for inflation. This one said, okay, how, many, uh, how much money did this movie make in 1955? Now, what was the average ticket price in 1955? Okay, that means very roughly they sold 22 million tickets. If those tickets were bought today in the average ticket price for 2019, which is when this chart was done, how much would they have grossed today? It's an extra step. It doesn't really change the list of movies that much, but it messes with the order a little bit. And it's an attempt to be even closer to, to answering the question people want, which is what's the most popular movie of all time? And the most popular movie of all time is Gone with the Wind. But what's number two? Number two is Star Wars, episode four, A New Hope, retroactively. Yeah, <laughs> retroactively. I would say it's not. It's just Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, but, and then that sort of feels right, you know, like as opposed to the lists, we should say what the number one and number two are on the other lists. We just did Avatar and Avengers Endgame. Exactly. 
And if you go through that list of just unadjust, just what made the most money, you find something very interesting. Almost every film in the top 100 was made in the 2000s. There are only five films from the 90s, and you have to go down all the way to number 92 to find one movie from the 80s, and that's E.T. the Extraterrestrial. And at number 100, you have one more movie from another decade, and that's Star Wars from 1977. So that's crazy. The movies yeah. did not suddenly become popular in the last 20 years. Uh, if you look at the top 100 of today, just by gross, 20 of them practically are comic book movies. Comic book movies are hugely popular. They're huge. They're not that popular. Right. <laughs> so it's if you adjust for inflation, find, you find that there are 10 movies in the top 100 that are comic book movies. But it's a better 10 movies because it includes something like Superman the movie, which is right. not on that list. So it makes a big difference. If really you look does. at the, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and one of the things is like if you look at the context of, of the coverage of the time, I mean, when, when Superman came, came out, it was the most expensive film that Warner Brothers had ever made. Yeah. And by the end of its, its original run, it was the highest grossing Warner Brothers film ever in the history of that studio. So, of course, that, that's going to make a ripple on the all time chart. And the fact that it won it, you know, just kind of illustrates the recency. Uh, bias of, of the, the, the gross. Well, and of course, that's not necessarily true. If you adjust for inflation, you got to find out what else did Warner Brothers make? You know, a lot of movies cost more than Cleopatra with Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. But by God, if you adjust for inflation, that's still right towards the top of all time. So that, that wasn't accurate at the time. We just want people to be accurate because it's more fun. If you that's look fun. at if you look at the list of movies, the top 10 most popular movies, the one we're looking at, you get a movie from the 30s the 70s, the 60s, the 80s, the 90s, the 50s, another one from the 70s, the 60s, the 70s, and another one from the 30s. So you get a huge, none of them are from 2000. The entire top 10, not until you get to number 11, Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens, you get a movie made in the 2000s. Almost the 92 movies on the other chart are from the 2000s, and in the top 10, there's none. That makes a huge difference right away. You suddenly you're seeing movies from all these different eras and you're seeing lots of different kinds of movies, aren't you? Absolutely, absolutely. As, as someone who doesn't have the list right in front of me, do you think you could go over what those top 10 are? Let's do the top 10. Um, we, do we want to do them? Well, since we started the top, we should continue down. Um, <laughs> so, so it was Gone with the Wind. And Star Wars, second. And then number three, uh, a film that's, saved the studio the sound of music which uh you know was the at, in its era was the highest grossing film of all time it was covered as such at the time um so the sound of music is number three and that makes sense saving the studio that had made cleopatra one of the That's biggest flops <laughs> of all time saving the studio from cleopatra uh, yes. in, in part uh and then uh, uh michael mentioned uh, our next film et the extraterrestrial on this list it comes in number four and number five would be Titanic, uh, the James Cameron epic, um, which uh, was released in 1997 and, uh, you know, was a transformative movie. And at the time, I think in, in, uh, it was covered as the first billion dollar grossing movie. I think it was the first film to cover, uh, to exceed a billion in its contemporary, contemporary you know, uh, monetary coverage. And to put that in perspective, in about a minute, you won't be able to make the top 50 unless you gross a billion dollars. That's how quickly things change. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because Titanic was the first billion dollar grocer. And then you had to, it went for years uh, until there was another, you know, uh, it was uh, James Cameron. Uh, well, I think Dark Knight, wasn't it? Because that one, hit, I think, went over a billion. Maybe not. I don't think so. What, was it? Well, I know, I know they kind of exceeded, but uh, there was other ones that broke a billion without exceeding Titanic. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, and then going down the list a little further, another um, sort of epic, uh, the Ten Commandments, number six. Number seven, the first true blockbuster day and date blockbuster, I suppose, uh, Jaws, uh, and then Dr. Zhivago at eight. Number nine is The Exorcist, which is fantastic. And uh, number 10, Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, a movie that transformed Hollywood in, in many ways. And, um, and it's appropriate to see a film like that it feels like in the top 10 this culturally feels like the top 10 movies of all time to me well look at that snow white and the seven dwarfs was an animated film the the are one of the first films that was a cartoon some were done with stop motion and other things the first fully hand-drawn animated movie of all time i think first but it was know. it was the biggest movie of all time until gone with the wind came along two years later it was number one there was nothing bigger and The Exorcist was a movie that right before Jaws transformed the box office and how much money could be made, how fast. And you get other stuff. You get the Ten Commandments. You get all the sword and sandal movies, all the bi biblical epics that dominated in the 50s. You get horror films like Jaws and The Exorcist. You just get such a range of movies. You get musicals. You get sci-fi. You get you know sprawling historical romances like Gone with the Wind and Titanic, which is also a disaster epic. Yes. And if you look at the top 10 overall today, just by box office, it's Avatar, Avengers Endgame, Titanic, Star Wars, The Force Awakens, Avengers Infinity War, the live action version of The Lion King, Jurassic World, The Avengers, Furious 7, Frozen 2, and Avengers Age of Ultron at number 11, and Black Panther. I mean, it's just all comic book movies. It's like, there's nothing, you know, you're like, yeah, yeah, I've seen all those. Right, right. Yeah, they, they, um, yeah, there's sequels to sequels also, you know, it, it, that's, I think, what it, when it starts feeling like slippery ground to people is when it's a sequel of a sequel, um, it sort of just makes the whole thing feel a little more flimsy. Um, it, it's fascinating that this list of 10, I mean, um, as you say, it's, it's, it's spread out over, uh, you know, you have movies from the 30s, 70s, 60s, 80s, 90s, 50s, 70s, I mean, 60s, that's, it's pretty good range, everything but the 40s. Well, and you know, you know why? Because of World War II, I was, yeah, it's like, I was like, why is there nothing from the 40s in here? And I went, oh, yeah, people were kind of distracted for five years, weren't they? Yeah, <laughs> five yeah. or six years. Oh, yeah, that whole World War thing kind of put a crimp in the worldwide box office, didn't yeah. it? Well, you, have, I, you have I'm to go down to number 24 to find a movie from the 1940s. And there are only two in the top 100. Uh, right. uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, yes. Uh, I'm sorry, I was looking at a different thing. You have non-Disney, Fantasia's at number 24, Pinocchio is at number 40, and Bambi's at number 55. However, those are all movies that were issued and reissued over the decades. That's right. To look at movies that weren't reissued in that way, there are only two live-action films from the 1940s. That is The Bells of St. Mary's at number 58, and The Best Years of Our Lives from number Oof. 87. So Bing Crosby and... War. And War, and, and really Bing Crosby's... The soundtrack for Please Come Home for More. Bing Crosby is the biggest star of all time. I mean, yeah. in all media. Yeah. He's, he was the voice of music. 
He was the most popular movie star in the 40s. He dominated music for the 30s and 40s. He was a big star on radio and then a big star on TV. There's never been a bigger star in every media than Bing Crosby. Look at that. He is the most popular film of the 1940s, purely. Uh, yeah. Maybe Fantasia and that stuff. The Best Years of Our Lives. What do you think of that movie? Uh, it's, I mean, certainly it, it speaks to an adult drama and an audience that, it, that's willing to turn to cinema for in, important and, and, and substantive entertainment. I mean, and, I mean, it's actually very heartening to me to see that in that list. And it's a little shocking to me because it's 1946. Everybody's home from the war. They're probably exhausted. This We're is hearing more and more about the horrors. And you would think, okay, the big movie that's about people coming home from the war, you're going to yeah. figure it's patriotic, it's heartwarming, it's all embracing, yeah. we're all together again, we did it, we won. And yeah. it's not. It's this clear-eyed, tough movie. There's veterans right. with one arm, with a hook. And you yeah. see a veteran, a real veteran, playing a character, and he's trying to button his shirt in his room, and he can't. And the shame and embarrassment of that. You see husbands who don't their family has grown up. They've been gone for five years. Their children are older. They barely know them. Every, there's all these routines they don't know about. And this is the movie that struck a nerve with America. This yeah. is the movie that people said, yes, this is what we're dealing with right now. It's kind of remarkable. It you really expect, is. I mean, yeah. It and really it's, is. It's like Schindler's List is the only thing I can compare it to, like a, a level of a, uh, and, then, and that wasn't as uh, urgently attached to the time. Uh, I mean, this is a national uh, hit movie at a time when this is a raw wound. I mean, it really is. It's pretty heartening that people turn to cinema for this kind of a message movie and that this, that this was there waiting for them. Let's, and let's just be clear. It's just a much better list. If you look at the list of movies just by gross, I would say about 16 of them are on my best of the year list for that particular year. Right. You know, there's a lot of stuff that just made a lot of money. If you look at the list that we have, the most popular films of all time, adjusted for inflation, all this other stuff, about half of the movies are on my best of the year list. Now, your your taste will be different. Everybody's tastes are different, but it's not like it's filled with esoteric movies. You know, you get the top 10. You're like, OK, I've heard of E.T. I've seen that. I saw Titanic. I saw Jaws, The Exorcist. You know, these are movies people have seen. They're not obscure art films but it's a much better list and a lot better movies are on it. So if you're thinking, what are the big movies of all time? And I want to check them out for the love of God, go to this list. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's uh, uh, just the eclectic nature of it. There are some on here that I, I find myself surprised that they um, did as well as they did, you know, and some are had the benefit of re-release as, as you pointed out, certainly like 101 Dalmatians at number 12, that's uh, shocking to me. That's the second most years. popular Disney animated movie of all time. A hundred and one. Yeah. I would not pick that in an hour. Yeah, I, it would have been. I would have picked five or six movies before I would even have thought of that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, um, that that must be the re-releases. I would think are as a big benefit on that one. Well, sure, but it counts, right? You know, people keep people go see Star Wars again. Avatar's back on the list because it was reissued. So. This That's is right. great. The only advantage of the other list, now Avatar's back on the list because it was reissued in China post-pandemic right. and made like 30, 40, 50 million dollars. It hadn't been fully released at the time. The one good thing about the other list is that you do get a couple international films like Wolf Warrior 2 and Hi Mom, which are huge Chinese hits. So it yeah. gives you a sense of that worldwide box office and the fact that we're not the only game in town. So I like that about the other list, but that will come around too, well, you know, slowly but surely onto this list. Some of the other ones that surprised me um, that are on here, um, 
I was a little surprised to see Love Story. I, I know that <laughs> it was a big hit, but it just, I, for some reason, I, I, I would not have, I, see, I feel surprised to see it on there. Love Story is at number 41, and it's the movie that, you know, love means never having to say you're sorry. It's a weepy. It was so big, of course, they did a sequel right away called Oliver's Story. And if right. you're a fan of Quentin Tarantino, maybe you ran out to the store and bought Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, his mass market novelization of that movie. And if you do, if you go to the back of the book, like you would expect him to do, it's a mass market paperback, as it should be, a nice, you know, cheap thing that you'd find in an airport, you know, rack. And in the back of the book, you'll find ads for other books like they had in the 70s, like Serpico and Oliver's Story. It says soon to be a major motion picture. <laughs> That's great. That's really funny. Yeah. Uh, let's see, I'm, the Disney, Disney has such a strong representation on this list. Uh, I think there's... Well, I've can, I counted it up for you. Don't you worry. Uh, the, uh, look, listen to this. Uncle Walt. If you look at those Disney studios when Uncle Walt was in charge, there are still 11 films on the top 100 of most popular movies of all time that he personally oversaw. Pinocchio, Bambi, Fantasia, Mary Poppins. And the one that really blows my mind is right towards the bottom of the list. It is Swiss Family Robinson, the live action movie. That's in the top 100 movies of all time. Wow. If you yeah. look at Disney Studios and you include all the classic Disney movies and Pixar and uh, live action, you know, anything by Disney Studios. And now yeah. you're talking about some of the Marvel movies as well. Of course, sure. you've got 26 movies. One out of every four is from Disney. In the top 100. In the top most popular movies of all time. That's kind of amazing. And if you just stuck to animated, they'd still have a huge showing, like 15 or 16 or 17. So that is pretty remarkable there's no there's a reason why 40 percent of the worldwide box office in 2019 was owned by disney they For know sure. what they're doing well the list i'm looking at and uh, we were talking about goes up to 200 but when you just oh. made that citation were you saying was that top 20? 100 i stopped at 100 yeah. yeah 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 i just want to make sure the list goes up for to a thousand i believe uh the list oh. keeps going you can go next page next page next page you can keep going to a thousand I'll, I'll tell you what's missing on the list, and I don't think they're lower down. It's silent films. Now, yeah. before Gone with the Wind and before Snow White, the most popular movie of all time was Birth of a Nation. Isn't mm. that telling? <laughs> and yeah, yeah. The track, I think the grosses and the tracking of ticket sales is nigh on impossible for the silent era. So I think that's why you're not seeing Charlie Chaplin films. Just don't forget. Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, that stuff played all over the world. No translation needed. You're watching Little Tramp go down the road and doing slapstick. Everybody laughed at that and enjoyed that all over the world. We'll never know, but they were hugely popular. If we had a really good, accurate telling, believe me, those would be in the mix too. So that's sure. the only reason no, you're not no, seeing no. something like that. Yeah, no, that's a good point. It's good for you to speak up for silent film. I think that's really good. <laughs> As Marcel Marceau said, no. <laughs> That's a that's a little movie, a little Mel Brooks joke there. But it, it's fun to look at this list and see the different genres that are represented, don't you think? I think it is, and it's great. Mel Brooks is I, I, that you mentioned him. He's got a really strong representation on here. Oh, I thought he just had one. What's the other one? Oh, I thought I saw two. Was, oh. uh, I saw Blazing Saddles for of sure. Of course, yeah. Um, oh, and then you, I guess you just said silent movie. So I just thought. Well, that's that's not on the list. No, no I know. I, I was trying to recover from my. Uh, <laughs> I don't I, think I just, he has. An, I don't think the producers or Young Frankenstein, which is my favorite Mel Brooks movie, is on the list. But yeah. I have to say, I'm a little surprised when people today look at the list. They're like, oh, my God, comic book movies. 
I know you love them. I love them. A well-made comic book movie is just as good as anything else. And when they complain about, oh, I got every other movie, I, I probably like you, I say, yeah, you know what? It happened with Westerns. Yeah, you know, sure. there was an era when every other movie was a Western and almost everything on TV was a Western, like eight out of the top 10 shows in some years in the 60s and 50s were Westerns. It was all they made. People Absolutely. must have been sick of them. Yeah, it was. There's one point where there was a month where uh, the top 40, there was uh, I think it was 19 of the top 40 television shows were were westerns and uh, i doubt that was for a month i'm sure it was for an entire year i mean yeah. eight of the top 10 were westerns so everything and of course you had comedy westerns you had anthologies you had dramas you had half hours family shows like the rifleman you had hour-long shows and just like that there's all types of comic book movies but when you adjust for inflation you see there aren't a lot of westerns on the list there's just butch cassie and the sundance kid and Blazing Saddles, which are almost two atypical Westerns. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, there's no John Ford, that's for sure. I mean, that's kind of amazing, actually, isn't it? Well, I think it's because Westerns were B-movies. Yeah. You know, a lot of the great Westerns that we love were not massive box office hits. They were hits. They were made and they made money, but they weren't the big epic. You know, when you made Sound of Music, you had a road show. You know, you said people pay extra today for IMAX to sit in an IMAX theater and have their popcorn and get the biggest screen. Back in the day, if they were showing Dr. Shivago or The Sound of Music, they had reserved seating. You paid a premium price. They gave a little booklet like you're at a Broadway show. This was yeah. for the first run of the movie. And it would run for like a year or two before they'd have cheaper tickets. But that's that's how you went to a big movie. You paid top dollar. But a Western, that was the second movie on a double bill. Absolutely. You so know, they never the, they never made the same money. That's amazing, though, that you would think that there you still think there would be one that would transcend that, that uh, to make the top list. I am surprised. I am surprised. I'm not surprised how many musicals there are. The um, do you know what the first Western on TV was? I was kind of surprised by this. Oh, it's uh, man, it's kind um, it's a uh, it's uh, is it Hopalong Cassidy? That no, they turned to turn the serials into episodes? No, what is oh, it? Oh, well, you know what? Maybe. I'm, I'm not sure if it maybe something like that kind of sneaks in then, but um, but the Lone Ranger was the first. Oh, radio into TV, absolutely. He was certainly right early on. I think he was, he was certainly the first, the first top ten hit, or he was the first hit for ABC. I think absolutely, yeah. It was ABC's first first hit, and um, uh, it's just interesting because I I I don't know that I think of sort of uh, kind of the more classic, I think more classic westerns. And I, I think Lone Ranger is coming after them for some reason. I don't know why. I, uh, but uh, Maybe because uh, it's pure TV. Yeah. He just feels like a different era. But if you, you, you know, that's, that's it for Westerns. There's no Lone Ranger. There's no John Ford. There's no The Searchers. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of epics, a lot of Bible epics. Yeah. I, uh, there are five of them. Ben-Hur, The Ten Commandments, which is the one from the 50s with Charlton Heston. Uh, behold! You know, uh, the the best, the highest grossing film in Aramaic of all time, <laughs> The Passion of the Christ, and a couple others. I forget what the others are. Um, wasn't The Robe on here? The Robe is on there. Absolutely. You're right. That's the one that was kind of shocking. But that talk about re it was every year they re-released it at Easter. Mm -hmm. you know, and it was just, it was uh, sort of the 101 Dalmatians of the Bible movies. That's right. <laughs> and they would re-release Ten Commandments. And then, of course, that transferred to TV, even movies that were flops. You'd see The Wizard of Oz. It would, didn't they, uh, they showed that a lot of holidays. They showed, oh, of course, The Ten Commandments every Easter. They became these holiday perennials on television and turned movies that were not 
successful, like It's a Wonderful Life, into, you know, iconic movies that everybody names. Now, it's not on the list. No, no, it's not. It was watched on TV, not at the movies. If you want to pick like um, little suites of movies like on this list, like three in a row, like the, the, as a viewer, mm-hmm. one of the strong uh, trios for me would be number 21, 22, and 23, where you get The Sting, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and The Graduate. Because that's a pretty strong, have nothing to do with each other. It's a triple bill that no one would ever put together. But that's a nice little corner of the list. It's the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. Uh, yeah. you just, the Graduate really kicks off one of the movies along with Easy Rider and a few others that really kicks off the, the 70s in terms of freewheeling movie making. Yeah. And you, you wonder why Mike Nichols had carte blanche for the rest of his career. Uh, that's the reason, baby. That's a massive, massive hit. Absolutely. And then Dustin Hoffman winning Best Actor in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Yes. Yeah. That's pretty and this, sure. 60s, and this, 80s, 60s, and this, 70s, 80s. Sorry. This thing is pure entertainment. Absolutely. One of the great bromances of all time, Redford and Newman. And then Raiders of the Lost Ark is just pure popcorn fun. That's a, a, a masterpiece of movie making. It's so entertaining. I've seen it many times since. It holds up great. And it points to something you said to me off air about Steven Spielberg. When you look at this list and you see what directors dominate, you go, wow, Steven Spielberg. <laughs> that's right. And that's why the list is, that's one of the main reasons it feels more um apropos or more uh, um, illustrative illustrative of, of the real wor- world is is the presence of Spielberg on this list as opposed to the the, the gross list which is kind of interesting because he took himself out of directing big blockbusters for a chunk of time that the other list was giving credit for you know that's right more, more recent you know it's kind of uh, as far as the uh, the inflation aspect of it he has six movies on this list, starting with, of course, E.T., the extraterrestrial at the top. And then as you scroll down, you find out Jurassic Park. Uh, what are the others? He has Indiana Jones and the Raiders Jaws. of the Lost Ark. That's not the right name. He has Jaws. And you get way down and you find out, oh, right, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He famously, he and George Lucas traded a piece of each other's movie. George thought my movie's not going to be a hit. Spielberg thought my movie's in a big mess. And they gave each other like points on the, the other guy's movies turning out to be Close Encounters and Star Wars. <laughs> I'd be happy to have a, a piece of 1941, frankly, but. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But so that shows you what a dominating director is. Alfred Hitchcock, not on the list. Horror films just didn't they had a ceiling they didn't gross that much until you got to the era of the exorcist and jaws and wide releases so psycho is the only uh didn't psycho make the list i don't believe psycho's on the list let me let me scroll through one more time twister is on the list isn't that wrong um isn't that just a bloody shame how did that happen i'm scrolling carefully all the way up through and i don't know i went too far down it's at 165 right which is you know yeah amazing yeah. for that movie that's a violent adult movie and that's that's pretty great yeah but it does bring up another genre disaster flicks uh intentional disaster flicks right <laughs> that's right not cleopatra <laughs> yeah d- disaster flicks absolutely um that sort of epic scale it, it feels like a lost time to us now but like that was a obviously a, a major genre and if you want to know movie history, if you want to know what the most popular movies of all time are, you got to know about disaster flicks. And if right. you look at that other list, you're not going to find that. You'll see Titanic, 
which I guess is a disaster flick. Sure it is, right? The boat sinks. Yeah. But what you won't see are other movies. And it's kind of amazing how I up there, like The Towering Inferno, right. The Poseidon Adventure. You know, these are movies that were huge in their days. And, you know, when you really get a sense of history and you see something like The Towering Inferno, you realize how incredibly influential it was. All those movies that came out, like Die Hard. That's a total nod to Towering Inferno, the way it's structured, everything about it. And then you realize, of course, if you see The Towering Inferno, you go back to Stagecoach. And you realize that movie is a tintype for all those movies that came after it. You have a contained space. You have some major threat, whether it's a fire or Native Americans who are kind of angry that you're encroaching on their territory. <laughs> Full sure. credit to them. But yeah. you have the coward in the group who's going to try and betray them. You have the, the, the woman with a fallen past. You have the little old person. You have the comic relief. You have the hero who's going to save the day. You, and you see this, you see Stagecoach and you realize, oh, my God, that's where Towering Inferno came from. And that's where Die Hard came from. And that's where, you know, Titanic and all these movies are pulling from. And you realize, yeah, movies got this big sweep. There's a lot of fun when you really start to pay attention and watch all these different movies and don't just watch, you know whatever came out last month. Yeah, and it's also great just to see Ernest Borgnine so many times, you know, like, <laughs> uh, or for disaster movies. We, we just went and would see Ernest Borgnine. Yeah, you know, Twister is on there. So Twister is a disaster flick, right, isn't it? So uh, that's 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 why you've got the Ernest. Yeah, that's where you get some characters who are like in like six movies and you think, what? Wait, what? <laughs> How did that happen? Um, and it's also, as you were saying, uh, it's just so musical. It's, the Disney movies and then the straight up musicals on the list um, you know, we just don't see their kind as much anymore, you know. Um, you'll see animated movies that are musicals in every sense of the word. If yeah. you look at the, uh, you'll see about seven animated movies and five live action movies on our list, our most popular movies of all time. So you will see things like, uh, you know, the, some of the animated films. And sometimes it's a close call because some of them just have one or two songs in them. But you'll see the live action movies. You'll see The Sound of Music and Mary Poppins, and West Side Story, and you'll see Grease and the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which opens up a whole new world of how did that make so much money? It wasn't reissued all the time. It just never left. Yeah. If midnight movies. Midnight movies are a phenomenon that came about in the 70s, and Rocky Horror helped popularize it, and that's just the way some movies can make money year after year after year. It doesn't matter when you make it, as long as you make it. It's just as valid as The Robe and The Ten Commandments and uh, 101 Dalmatians. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's like being, uh, it's like a character in Bull Durham. He's all time leader and hits in the minor leagues. But he's still <laughs> leader, so it still, still they're, matters. They're still hits by God. Uh, looking at the top 20, it, um, again, of the list, uh, which starts with Lion King at 20 and goes all the way up to the uh, top with Gone with the Wind. That's the classic original Lion King, the that's animated right. version. Yeah, that's right. Uh, nominated for Best Picture, uh, 1994. Um, but looking at the top 20, I'm thinking about the movies in the, in the on this list that don't still have a persistence in the public imagination the way they used to. And the one that jumps out at me um, is the great Dr. Zhivago, which is uh, comes in at number eight on the list. But I would think of, of these films, that's the one that most people are not going to have a, a strong connection to because the, it's not an animated Disney film. It's not a Star Wars film. It's not Jaws or um, even The Sound of Music, which has a persistence because of the you know, community performances as well as, as its own legacy. Uh, but that's the one I, I feel like doesn't have the, uh, the same traction in the public mind anymore. 
Well, and one good reason is because it's so bad. <laughs> yes. Okay. W where is the bridge on the River Kwai? I know it's on here. No, it's Lawrence of Arabia that's on the list. What else? Isn't there? Isn't there? Oh, yes. At number 93 is the bridge on the River Kwai. At number 84 is Lawrence of Arabia. Bridge on the River Kwai is a classic. It's a great movie. Wholly entertaining. Lawrence yeah. of Arabia is an absolute Wait. towering masterpiece. Yeah. Perfect. And that, those are all by David Lean. But way in the top 10, he has Dr. Zhivago, which I don't even like the book, to be honest with you, which is you're not supposed to say that. But I, I don't like the book. And the movie is a dreadful doll and it has a, a a key musical note the laris <laughs> theme which is played incessantly the, you yeah. want to kill yourself by the end of that movie it's just like goes on. <laughs> i have oh. a music box that plays that i can play it on the piano oh that yeah of course you can we all can but you should play <laughs> but you should grab the music box right now and play it while we're on the air that would be awesome <laughs> oh i don't have it here but yes i i do have to i like reserve it for christmas when it's snowing i don't like go back to it too much <laughs> good to know there are always going to be movies people don't like or maybe they don't hold up well uh dr shivago is one where you kind of scratch your head and wonder why that clicked so much it was romantic people loved it, it was snowy but still top 10 but yeah there you, know. you can't tough. you can't ignore it are there any other head scratchers for you there's stuff you don't like or things you haven't don't think people people got a little more excited about forrest gump than they should have probably yeah, I think I think that there's a good case to be made for that. There's a lot of things going down the list that, you know, are movies that uh, I just yeah I think I don't know that Shrek two um, <laughs> Shrek two Shrek someone two. who was a kid when that happened absolutely deserves that place. Shrek two is a monument, <laughs> okay. like like you said, Lawrence of Arabia was obviously. Okay. It's, just, it's just like it's David Lean's lost Shrek two. Uh, yeah, I get that. Um, I I, I, the previously mentioned love story is a little surprising to me just because I, I don't think of it having that much traction. Um, airport. Uh, airport, part of the disaster movie disaster. genre. That's a, you know, there were like five sequels, you know, and then of course the great, great spoof airplane, one of the great spoofs of all time, like Blazing Saddles. I'm sorry, airplane isn't on the list. It's probably in the top 200 or top 300. I and mean, that's just crazy to me. Yeah, it feels a, like it should be. It's a huge, huge hit, but that just around tells you world, how big airport was. Ooh. Around the world in 80 days, a terrible film. Yes. I think I think we need another list for airplane and Blazing Saddles, the list of genre destroying movies. <laughs> yes. Sure. Well, and that's it's a it's a mad, 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 mad world which I have friends who love, but I find it very lumbering and tiresome. Do they, do they like Dean Martin's roasts too? I mean, yeah. it's, 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 it's an archeological value, but I don't know that it's purely entertaining at some point. And when you look at those and you see a lot of them come from the sixties and you see that era, you see Dr. Shivago, which is uh, what era is that? 1965. And you see, it's a mad, 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 mad world, which is 1963. And then what was the other one you just mentioned? That's a little lumbering. I think that was from the 60s as well. And you realize uh, the greatest show on earth is 1952, also not a good movie. And you see these big epics that around the world in 80 days is 56. In the 50s and 60s, that the studios cool. really got weighed down by these big, big lumbering movies. And they succeeded commercially, obviously, but they became so leaden that you ended up with Dr. Doolittle and cool. Barbara Streisand wildly miscast in Hello, Dolly. And... Cleopatra movies that are not on this list or not all of them and you realize that's what paved the way for The Graduate and Easy Rider 
and all the movies of the 70s that you love, these groundbreaking, terrific movies that really shook things up. Cleopatra was a uh, number 1963, by the way. And those movies just weighed down the studios. And you get one or two of them wrong, you know? I think Cleopatra is, is number 46 on the list, and it still lost money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was still a teetering disaster in, in the day. So those big, heavy epics, you can see they're clumped together. And you realize you had to clean out the system and get it all started all over again. And that's how you end up with the down and dirty jaws and the exorcist and yeah. the graduate, these movies that did not have big budgets at all, but scored and rechanged right. movies. And it, some of these, some of the uh, box office champs uh, historically covered as such like Batman, you know, uh, the release of Batman, 1989, the Tim Burton one. I mean, it was a transformative moment for Hollywood. Absolutely. Uh, with the merchandising and, and uh, the licensing and, and the amount of money that that movie made, I would have thought that it would have been a little higher on the list, actually. It's at 57 after Blazing Saddles, which had re-releases. Um, but then you look, it's, it's still ahead of Finding Nemo at 60 uh, and um, also ahead of Spider-Man 2 and, and National Lampoon's Animal House at 68, which um, was, I think, maybe more of a cultural hit than a commercial success i mean it should well i mean the, the commercial uh, animal house was definitely an, a massive commercial hit no doubt about that absolutely but, I mean, it'd be on the list but i'm just saying it's it it's it resonated um not just with re-releases i think animal house. oh yeah you know just culturally with john hoga uh, parties and yeah no that was a massive hit but batman is on the list and where's the dark knight isn't that on here somewhere Yes, yeah. Dark Knight Rises at number 73. I think that's the, the more recent iteration. The Batman, when you don't adjust for inflation, has a really interesting history of setting opening weekend box office records. Almost every film for a while, until you had to reboot the franchise, set a new all-time record for opening weekends and openings. Batman, and then the second Batman, and then not, I think, Batman and Robin, and then not the first Christian Bale, but then the second and third Christian Bale. Batman is hugely popular. You can speak to that. When you're looking at comic book movies and you see the Batman movies and how they draw people in every single time, that how big, the Dark Knight is at number 33, by the way, you see yeah. how big Batman is. I mean, Superman is on this adjusted list, our most popular list, but he ain't up there with Batman. No. Spider-Man's on the list. He ain't up there with Batman. Yeah. You know, Batman is Joker? Was... Is Joker on that? Jo Joker is not, I think, on the adjusted okay. list. Let me scroll all the way down. He's certainly on the top grossing movies of all time. He's surely to be in the top yeah. 200, probably. Uh, you have to scroll Plus down the to find him. Yeah. Rated R movie. Yeah, I was just wondering because, I mean, I think people in my generation make such a big deal about Joker. So I was interested in how it measures up compared to the just canon of Batman films. Joker, and of course he deserves that because he's part of the Batman world, but you have to mm -hmm. go into the top 300, I think, to find Joker. I'm still looking for him. Right. Uh, there's Porky's. Underrated <laughs> R films to compete Joker with. is at number 240. Yeah. And, His ex uh, Exorcist is not, uh, Exorcist is R-rated, isn't it? It is. It, that, that, that would be like the, the strong anomaly. Right. So when people talk about Joker passing The Exorcist and being the highest grossing R-rated film of all time, not even close when right. you adjust. That's the Exorcist right. is at number nine. Joker is number 240. Yeah, exactly. So but, that's that's exactly the sort of, um, you know, flip sort of telescope vantage point that this list provides, which is 
I think, carrying it closer to reality. Um, the highest grossing Gotham movie on this list would be Dark Knight at, at 33, mm-hmm. um, which would be, which makes sense. I mean, that was the the, the peak of the Christopher Nolan trilogy. Um, but yeah, you know, Batman also, it shows to the emphasis, Warner Brothers, you know, between 1952, 53, when the, the first Superman movie came out and, um, you know, uh, all the way up through today, you know, Warner Brothers has, uh, didn't make that Superman movie, but say the, the Warner Brothers and the, the DC Comics uh, uh, people adapting it at that time, um, they went again and again and again to Superman and Batman. Uh, those were the characters they would do again and again. Um, you know, you were getting, in the 80s, you had Superman, uh, you had 70s and 80s, you had Superman and then um, Superman 2 and Superman 3 and Superman 4. You had Batman come along and then uh, the sequels that you just mentioned. And the only other DC Comics characters that were even getting on the screen were Swamp Thing, was Swamp Thing. I mean, that that was, those were the three that would, would get <laughs> movies. I mean, it's kind of a strange trio, um, uh, quite honestly. And and in fact, the only, uh, other than Swamp Thing, the only DC Comics character that had a sequel film or a remake, because uh, uh, I mean, Supergirl didn't have a sequel, obviously, uh, you had to get to, um, uh, Red, R-E-D, uh, which is based on the Vertigo comics, mm-hmm. you know, to get... Uh, with Helen Mirren. Exactly. Who's on the big have, screen this week with F9. Exactly. And, uh, did, but uh, while Marvel, when they, they started their big run, you know, they they're, uh, they have uh, Iron Man and Thor and Captain America and, and all these different franchises and DC again and again and again, Batman, Superman, Batman, Superman. Look how long we had to wait for a one Woman movie. I mean, she was a character for... 80 years before she got a chance at the silver screen. I mean, that's that's kind of a long wait for your third biggest character. Um, but uh, it, Batman is the one that's uh, is the perennial, um, and I think that it just it's the the textures and the the symbolism of the character really lend themselves to the big screen, um, and and the, the production values have just been great. But that's what speaks to people, not the vigilanteism or the fact that he has no superpowers i mean spider-man's an everyday guy but he still had to be bitten by a radioactive bug i said i think you know what is i think that batman had fewer challenges than spider-man or superman or the hulk or fantastic four all those require so much special effects and they were so hard to pull off in in a believable and effective way and also characters that wear masks uh you know the best actors don't want to play characters with masks uh uh, you know, I, one of Marvel's great innovations was having that shot inside Iron Man's mask of Downey. Um, like, I, I, I think that changed the way that uh, lead actors play roles because uh, characters with masks they traditionally don't like. Well, looking at the list of playing your game, you, you can have such fun of picking three movies in a row. It's pretty uh, easy. A81 is West Side Story, a great musical. A82 is Close Encounters. And 83 is Lady and the Tramp, the classic Disney animated movie. <laughs> so you can, do, you can do that again and again and find three really fun movies. There, there are movies I don't like on here. But you talk about the challenges of bringing comic book movies to the screen effectively. And that is really hard. And something I never thought would be accomplished in my lifetime in a live action movie was the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. I thought it would be made for TV as a mini series and be animated. Cause I didn't see how it could be done without being ridiculous, truly ridiculous, walking trees, hobbits. It was going to be awful. And if you look at our list, the most popular movies of all time, they're all on here. The yeah. fellowship of the ring is at number 90. 
the two towers is at number 72 and the tickle fest the return of the king is at number 59 and that tells you what an accomplishment that was absolutely it's, it's a towering achievement um did you see any of the animated ones that were released in the 20th century the, the Bashki or yeah i think Bakshi did one and then uh rankin bass well they did a tv version of the return of the king to wind up the story um, the Bashki one was not a commercial success by any stretch, or they would have made a sequel. So I remember seeing that in the theaters and not hating it. I was like, oh, it's all right, you know, good try. Uh, but uh, they weren't even close to big hits. But you do get surprised when you look at the list. Home Alone, which I've never seen, is at number 43. Back to the Futures at 71. Tootsie at 76, one of my perhaps my favorite comedy of all time and smoking the bandit let's not forget how cool burr reynolds was smoking the bandit is there at number 70 you're like oh yeah those were big big movies norm mcdonald does the best burt reynolds impression like, like, <laughs> I, like it's the most unlikely thing i've ever seen but, and uh, mash is on the list mash robert altman has a film mash was so big it's at number 98 one of the most popular movies of all time you should really go see McCabe and Mrs. Miller, but MASH, there it is on the list, right up, right below One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. These are pretty edgy movies that get onto this list. you still got Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen. You've got Swiss Family Robinson. You've got Twister and Men in Black. So, you know, you've, you've got those blockbusters uh, that are sort of a little more obvious. You've got God Help Us, the live-action version of Beating the Beast from 2017. Not the original animated, but the live-action remake, God Help Us. Here's the crazy one. Duel in the Sun, 1946 at 107. Oh, I was like, is it on the list? I didn't say, yeah, that's also not a good movie. <laughs> uh, but again, to remind you how popular it was, there it is. There's the Hunger Games catching fire right above that. And Ghost. Ghost was hugely, that's a huge, huge movie. That's Mrs. Right. Doubtfire almost made the top 100. That's why they're about to turn it into a Broadway musical. Hugely popular film getting closer to your kids, somehow finding a way to get touch your inner whatever. People love that stuff. You got to die to get romantic with your wife and make make sculpture or make pottery and ghost, or you got to dress as a woman to get close to your kids. These are valuable life lessons from Hollywood. And House of Wax, uh, number at one, one, one um, sort of indicative of the, uh, the 3D, uh, the original 3D popularity, maybe. Yes, uh, never as popular as they hoped. Right, but I mean, I, I think that that was one of the few standout uh, commercial successes. Of, uh, I mean, one of the notable commercial successes. So, and the first, and the first Alfred out. Hitchcock right below that rear window at number one twelve. One of the great entertainments of all time. If you've never seen a Hitchcock movie, Rear Window or Psycho are definitely the ones to start with. I would say Rear Window. It's pure, pure fun. I would say Strangers on a Train only because Rear Window. I have to say, I love, I love the film, but I also, I, I can't. I can barely watch it because I get so upset about the, the, the film because my, have you seen this film? No, unfortunately. Okay. It's on my list. It's yeah, I know. Fun. We've all let got me, lists. Let me, We've all let got me lists. something up for you. Okay. So it starts off, we meet a guy and he's got a broken leg. Uh, he's mm -hmm. a photojournalist. He was shooting a um, car race, got too close to the finish line. He gets injured. Uh, we find this all out in a quick uh, summary of past events. He's laid up and he looks out his rear window, uh, hence the title, and he sees this, this masterfully orchestrated tableau of his, his neighbors and he can see into their homes, their apartments, and he can see into their lives. And, and we learn in short visual 
uh, introductions about these characters that are part of this this tapestry of his life. Uh, and then, and this, this, that's like the first two minutes of the film. Okay, so, and I'm not gonna ruin anything for you. Um, he then at some point views something that he sees as very suspicious. And he thinks that one of his neighbors is trying to kill someone. And he has a hard time getting people to believe him. And it goes from there, things happen, and there's suspense and tension and disbelief and, and skepticism and, and all these things. But let me recap. He is, did you remember what his career was? Photojournalist? He's a journalist. And he's looking <laughs> through a camera. <laughs> and the camera has a telephoto lens on it. And through the camera, he sees all the suspicious behavior that no one is going to believe happened. And it never fucking occurs to him to push the button and take a picture. In the but, entire fucking movie, but and, no. we all, we, and we just we put up with this. We accept this is like this is the way a movie is supposed to happen. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Except nothing mm. he sees is remotely suspicious. If you took a photo of it, you'd see him putting row. garbage out. You know, there's nothing, nothing remotely incriminating that he sees. It's all just in his head, perhaps. That's right. the problem. It's all just why the women don't listen to him. I don't know. But there's nothing. He doesn't have an axe in his head and about to hit, throw it down on someone. We don't see him beating someone up. If he did, I would say, sure. But showing him taking out the garbage and saying, look, officer, I believe there's a body in this bag. That's not really going to cut it. He turned off the lights. I'm suspicious. I, like it like it would all have been circumstantial evidence you mean yeah. beyond circumstances nothing yeah. there's, it's just it's just he looks creepy and you're putting it together and he's right perhaps mm -hmm. but there's nothing you could take a picture of that would say it never look, occurs look, to weapon. him it never <laughs> occurs to him to take a photo you know what never occurs to fans is that you could have a list of the most popular movies of all time without <laughs> including without including james bond and james bond is on this list but brace yourselves people the James Bond movies, quite rightly, at number 48 is Goldfinger. Nice. Greatest Bond film of all time, I think. It's the iconic mm -hmm. one. It's set yeah. the standard for all the rest. But then above that at number 32 is Thunderball. Ooh. Thunderball. <laughs> How did that get to 30? Nothing else. But Thunderball is on there. It was, it was propelled by the voice of Tom Jones. Yeah. <laughs> Thunderball. No, he's got a, he's, he's, he gives Shirley Bassey a run for her money. Oh, man, you know, Tom Jones and I go back, you know, I have history with him. He's got a great voice and his new album is strong. If you like he's Tom great. Jones, he's had a really good, strong run of, of, of James Bond movies. He's, he's I mean, of, 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 of albums, a la Johnny Cash, not quite at that level, but they're good. Yeah, he's, and he's, a, he's a great guy. If you ever want um, to, I don't know how, if he still goes there, but there's this great place called Vibrato uh, that Herb Alpert owns uh, up on Mulholland. And that's like Tom Jones is like kind of fun hang spot. Like he likes to hang out. But I've did, done a couple of articles on him through the years and just just adore the guy. He's just one of the great people. I just but do really you like, like do you like the James Bond film Thunderball? No, no, I don't. And I remember him saying, what the hell is a Thunderball? Like he's like, what does that mean? <laughs> like he, he, I said, can you explain the song to me? He goes, no, I have no idea what the song means. Like he's like, it's just jump, it's gibberish. It's, it means nothing. It's, right. It's, and he, he made one more and he said, I'm I'm humiliated and embarrassed. And he walked away from the franchise after you only live twice, which took a lot of guts because <laughs> Thunderball was one of the biggest movies of all time, Clearly. as was Goldfinger. And he only lived twice was no no schlocker. And they yanked him back for Diamonds Are Forever. 
And then they yanked him back again a decade later for Never Say Never Again. But yeah, Thunderball. I, there's five Bond movies I would rather see up there than Thunderball or 10. Absolutely. Give, give Roger Moore one even rather than Thunderball. Moonraker. At least they had the, the cool poster. I like the movie poster. There's no, there's no end to the fun you can have at this list. And there's movies you will recognize if you're listening to this. Go, what? There's The Godfather's on the list. Uh, Black Panther is on the list. The Dark Knight is on the list. This is not just old movies you never heard of. But it does show you there's a lot more than the last 10, 15 years of movie going to embrace. And you know what? You see Love Story. And you go, it's fun to watch. and go, really? This was the biggest hit of 1970? This movie? Yeah. It happens. You know who, who the, the missing person is kind of on this is uh, surprising is Eastwood. Well, he's never a huge draw, though. Yeah, he's never in you, big movies. He's never in big blocks. Of, you mm-hmm. know, it's just it's, uh, there's no single hit, I suppose, but it's just. Uh, he made Westerns. So yeah. he made Good, the Bad and the Ugly. And he made all these lean movies that were profitable. And then he could keep making more of them, but they were never monster hits. He really became a commercial force, I think, with Dirty Harry and The Enforcer in those movies. But even them were not big, big hits. They were yeah. big hits for the year, but never like massive hits. But his cultural impact is a lot bigger. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. And not a lot of Schwarzenegger either, really, on this list. No, you, you know, Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise has never been in a lot of big, big movies. Uh, the Mission Impossible franchise, of course, is his one franchise. Maybe so? now he has Top Gun will be his second one if, if that movie ever comes out. But Top Gun is not in the top 100 as I scroll through here. I'm not sure where it is. That's probably his most popular movie. There it is. Number 124 is Top Gun. Don't, yeah. don't kid yourself. Tom Cruise is one of the biggest stars of all time. He's sure. a huge star. He's made movie after movie that's been very successful. He's a great talent. But he's not always made. He's made movies that are interesting instead of making, you know, five Avengers movies, which that's cool. But he's never been he's never relied too heavily on a franchise until Mission Impossible. Mostly it's just been a very successful movie like Rain Man. Oh, is Rain Man on there? I don't think so. Yeah, it's is it's uh, Top Guns at 124 and Rain Man is actually higher, if I remember right. I know I saw it. The list is endless fun. You can scroll for days. <laughs> There's Iron Man at number 148. Rain Man is at 159. All right. So, yeah, you know, Dances with Wolves, that's at 155. You've got Westerns on here. You've got war movies like Sergeant York, which is right above Top Gun. You four know, Horsemen you... of the Apocalypse. I did not see that coming. Which one? The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Well, that's that's got to be a, that's an, a silent film. So that's got maybe better better tracking on what it grossed than uh, uh birth of a nation which really should be on here because i'm pretty sure that was even bigger than four horsemen of the apocalypse is that a griffith maybe, you, maybe, this, w. Is, griffith? maybe this was bigger in europe yeah, well yeah exactly You're, you make a good point you know i'm thinking about north america and maybe there were other movies that that pulled it together when you look at world war they don't even list international grosses for the four horsemen when i click on imdb pro it's just nine million dollars but it was back in 1921. And when you look at the m- number of tickets they sold to get to $9 million, you know, it was an $800,000 budget. Convert that into today's dollars. That's a lot of money. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, you're going you're gonna to find some silent films on this list if you keep scrolling down. But it's a great list. It's a lot better than the one people look at. And if you want to tell people this is one of the most popular movies of all time, got to go to the real list. Absolutely. You're going to find Avatar. Hell, it's there at number 15. That's damn impressive. 
one of the most popular movies of all time after a hundred years of movie going it's in the top 15 but it ain't at number one i think we should we should to promote this list we should start giving out awards i think we should call james cameron and tell him congratulations your film what did that one finish by the way did you say number 15 we'd like to congratulate you you're number 15 on our list we'd like you to come for it and, and give him an award and see if he shows up <laughs> I, don't, I don't know well, well where is titanic does do do the awards eat each other or do you we get can, multiple we can that one too we could say he's hey, in top five with titanic dude you're number five congratulations we want to you know we'll see if yeah spielberg will be sitting next to you at the table with his et at number four and robert wise at number three with the sound of music and George Lucas at number two, one of the few, well, the only movie, he, well, no, Phantom Menace is probably on there. Uh, American uh, he, he, huh? American Graffiti might be on there. American Graffiti is on there. Absolutely. That's in the top 100. I think it's in the top 50 even. Yeah. Probably. Uh, no, it's at number 51. 51. You know, when he bothered to direct, he sure made hits. THX 1138. Is that? No, I don't think that's on the list. I don't think so. And then the five people who directed Gone with the Wind at number one. Yeah. Victor Fleming and company. George Cukor. Yeah, that's right. Um, the uh, Victor Fleming was Wizard of Oz and uh, um, what else did he direct? Gone with Cukor. the Wind in the same year. Yeah, exactly. Um, he died not long after that though, right? Didn't he die just a couple of years after that? I forgot that. Yeah, I think so. He was in like a car accident. I think he died a few years after that. Um, I like to end the podcast with a real downer. <laughs> well good, good success <laughs> and remember keep in mind how many more people there are today so selling enough tickets to compete there are 123 million people in the country in the 1930s we have 330 million people today that's well over two times almost three times as many people well, hell there were only 190 million people in the 60s we're, we're like 75 80 percent of that today so yeah. there's a lot more people around today so knowing that those movies still compete and still are up there that's really impressive. Absolutely. Did you see where King Kong was on this list? I didn't see King Kong. I'm sure he's in the top 200. He's not in the top 100, or I think I would have noticed that because that would be another uh, horror film, adventure film, yeah. and an exciting movie. That's certainly one of the movies that rewrote the list. One of the great scores of all time. King Kong had, you know, a classic score that, that people imitated ever after that. Gremlins yeah. is at 141. The Fugitive. The Kane Mutiny. I'm look, looking for. I'm looking for King Kong, and I'm not finding. 2001 at 154. Thank you, drugs. That's why that's movie. <laughs> I love that movie. It's a great movie. It's a masterpiece. But the drugs helped for a lot of people to make it a, to make it that popular. On Golden Pond, Saturday Night Fever. The I still help with that one. <laughs> I still have not found. Uh, it's got to be in the top 300 or 400. Yeah. So yeah, you would look for your favorite movie. Give yourself a little. Oh wow, okay. It's it's not quite in the top 100, is it? Nine to five is number two eleven. So you know, there's lots of great movies to be seen. Absolutely. Well, fantastic. Well, it's uh, it's fun thinking outside the box on this outside outside the box office. King uh, Kong is at number two. Oh heck no, that's number two thousand and five. <laughs> the two thousand and five remake of King Kong is at number two sixty eight. So uh, I, I and Arthur, one my one of my favorite comedies of all time. That's on two eighty seven. So you'll find your favorite movies here, Midnight Cowboy. But the original King Kong, we're still scrolling for it while Jeff winds this up. But yeah, check out the list because it's a lot better than the list you're looking at. Yeah, and it's uh, it's fun to revisit. And it's also fun to uh, um, uh, think about some movies that maybe are worth checking out. Like I think Michael said he's going to go watch Home Alone after this. I think he's finally broken down and he decided that that's, that's how he's going to spend his day, right? Exactly. <laughs> 
Well, it is, uh, I think it's a good message for folks. We'll put links out to how to find this and, and, and kudos to Box Office Mojo and to their IMDb Pro uh, connection, uh, powering, sponsorship, whatever that means. Uh, Intel Inside, I don't know, um, for doing this list. I think it's admirable that they they did did this. I found another King Kong, but it's in the 400s and it's the 1976 version with Jessica Lange. <laughs> so we've got the 2005, the 76, and still we're looking for the classic original. Um, Charles Grodin, in, uh, he was in King Kong, wasn't he? The 76 version? Yeah. I've, I've never seen it, but I, I believe you. I think so, yeah. I think, yeah no, one would, no one would make that up. <laughs> Kong Skull Island is on the list, but still not the original one. The wow. King's Speech made more is more popular than King Kong. I don't think so. I must have missed it. Or maybe it's like a data error because I mean that's still pretty early, right? Yeah, it's thirty three, I think. Yeah, so maybe uncollectible and unknown. Right, something that fell through the cracks. That seems yeah. unlikely that it wouldn't be on this list by now. Yeah, Pokemon I find it Detective hilarious Pikachu. that Kong Skull Island is on it. I don't know <laughs> anyone who saw them. <laughs> I think. Right. The only, did you ever see King Kong Lives from nineteen eighty six? Uh, no, I, I saw King Kong Jr., the one they released like a week after the original. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. I, well, I the, the, know within, within, within six months, with, with, before the year was out, they released a sequel. You know, but people who complain about King Kong and say, oh, they're always, I mean, movies, and they say, oh, so many sequels and remakes. Oh, please, they've been doing that since time began. But well, here's the problem. They list King Kong as having grossed $651. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it made more than that. So that's what wow. IMDb. So they've got a little glitch there, IMDb. You guys do a great job. It's not easy. We respect you. We know how hard it is. We're going to have to work on this, though. King Kong, 1933, according to Wikipedia, grossed $5.3 million. We'll have to, well, let's send them a note after this. This is, this is the purpose of this entire, entire podcast, was to bring some justice and, and to, uh, to Skull Island and make sure. Clearly, there's been a monkey wrench. Uh, <laughs> son, son of Kong was released uh, within six months. The same I, 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 I am staggered by the fact that in 1986 there was a, a Dino De Laurentiis production, uh, King Kong Lives, with Brian Kerwin from TV. I remember him from TV, um, and Linda Hamilton, and presumably a, a large monkey. And I, I'm <laughs> unaware of this film wholly. I don't even know it existed, and I was a junior in high school. I'm just really Did shocked. You? Didn't De Laurentiis do the 76 or am I thinking yes. of a different? Okay. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. He said the same director too as the 76. I'm just, I have no idea. I, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I feel like I've missed something in my life. I am done. We are done. This is done. But uh, uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. It's so much fun talking movies with you and uh, this list um, I feel validated that you agree with me that uh, this list is better than the, the norm, and we shall begin our, our crusade right here with this podcast to change the world. And what's the one movie on the list you want people to see if they've never seen it before? Dr. Zhivago. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for playing. So thanks for joining us here on Mindspace and uh, we'll see you next time. Michael, thank you again for joining us and we do hope you'll come back. I definitely will, even if you don't want me. <laughs>